You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader and Dr. Tevin Naidu evaluate various theories of consciousness and discuss the pros and cons of each theory. From physicalism to idealism, they explain their own impressions of these theories and broaden our understanding of what consciousness is. Dr. Tevin Naidu is a medical doctor, philosopher, and ethicist from South Africa. He is the host of the podcast Mind Body Solution which explores the difficulties of the mind-body problem and aims to get one step closer to the mind-body solution. Dr. Naidu's academic work focuses on theories of consciousness, computational psychiatry, values-based practice, moral luck, addiction, and the philosophy and ethics of science, mind, and mental health. Dr. Tevin Naidu, what a wonderful time to be with you. You're a great medical doctor, philosopher, and ethicist. You host a wonderful podcast with great thinkers, philosophers, and scientists. And so I feel like you've been through so much and so deeply into the field of consciousness. I was thinking, you know, like you go into this YouTube and you want to buy a camera and you just ask what is the best camera available and they'll tell you, you know, number four, number five, number six, number one and pros and cons and the price and all of that, that maybe we can have fun together doing this, but rather than for cameras and printers, for what theories there are around about consciousness. Let's start with, if I may suggest, with the most physical one, which means we start that rather than having the physical and the mental, as dualism tries to suggest, there are scientists, philosophers, thinkers that think that actually there is only the physical. The other side of the spectrum we have, there is only the mental or only consciousness. But if we start with only the physical, so we have that physical reality, and what about consciousness? And that's the hard problem of consciousness. So what are the pros and cons of total physicalist? Consciousness is actually nothing. It's an illusion. And from time to time, if we remember, we'll mention those scientists or thinkers that support such ideas. Well, Tony, first of all, uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I mean, I started Mind Body Solution for primarily the same reason. I mean, I'm trying to figure this out. It's been something that's on my mind since I've been a child. I was around nine when I first started questioning the nature of reality. Why am I thinking? Similar to Descartes, I mean, you're putting yourself in this position where you, you, you try and exclude everything else and try to understand what is the fundamental nature of my mind or reality. And I think that's a great question. And you're right. I mean, the fact is we're both doing something so similar. We're exploring this, this, this field dissecting it very philosophically. And I think it's best to do that because when you dissect things philosophically, you tend to notice a lot of flaws in your own logic and reasoning. I grew up fundamentally a physicalist. For me, there was, it was all physical to me from when you start off at quarks, bosons, you go from physics into chemistry, into biology, anatomy, physiology, psychology. For me, it was very much an emergentism sort of uh, approach. And that's one of the physical theories out there. I mean, emergentism is one of them. If you think about water, for example, how do separate H2O molecules sort of come together to form this liquid that we all see? And that's what I thought consciousness was. I thought at some point, perhaps, you put enough neurons together, uh, bundle them up, and you get this amazing feature that is water, let's say, and that's consciousness. And, and then along the way, it started to change. I mean, I remember reading a lot of Daniel Dennett and uh, a lot of other philosophers, and there's so many different theories. For example, Dennett has the multiple drafts theory. You've got someone like Joshua Bach who's got this cortical conductor theory. You've got global workspace theory. I mean, Stan DeHane, you've got um, Christoph Koch and integrated information theory. There are so many neuroscientific theories that are physicalists. 
and you were talking about physicalism and what they tend to do is what people call a materialistic reductionism. I don't really like the word reductionism also because back when I was doing it, I felt like I was actually trying to give more awe to this experience. I mean, you reduce them to layers, yes, but you bring them all back together somehow to create this wonderful experience that we all have, which is consciousness. I often say we are a conscious conglomerate of cells organized by organelles designed by DNA, manufactured by molecules, assembled by atoms, forged by fusion via stellar supernovae. I mean, this wonderful process, I mean, from a star exploding, creating all of these atoms that sort of come together at some point and make this mind, this person that's talking to you right now. And even that started to change over time. I mean, I, I wrote in my dissertation an essay on illusionism as a theory of consciousness because I found it very persuasive. I mean, for us, when you look at the way we perceive reality, all animals on the planet, to me, are limited by our sensory adaptations to this planet. I'll give you one example, the optical window, for example. Uh, you're only allowed to see between ultraviolet and infrared if you were on Earth, because that's all the radiation that the atmosphere allows through, and that's why it's called the optical window. It's all we can see. And humans can only see Rojibov, so red, orange, yellow, green, violet, but there are certain species like birds or snakes that can see infrared and ultraviolet and none of us see anything else, which has to make us question the fact that we don't see reality for what it really is. You've got to ask yourself, are we really seeing the truth, the veridicality, what's out there? So that got me really doubting human intuition. We have biases, we have heuristic adaptations to our environments and we have to survive. It's, uh, to me, it's not about survival of the fittest. I don't like using that term because uh, I think it's a survival of whatever has the best genes to accommodate the environment. So, for example, people say humans run the world. I don't think so. To me, bacteria run this planet. I mean, the typical human body, I think it's about 30 trillion human cells and 39 trillion bacterial cells. So at what point are we going to ask ourselves, am I human or am I bacteria? Or, or when, do, when do all these bacteria consider themselves human? If it's a question of cells, just numbers. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it, it, it does make you think about this fact that you're not purely yourself. I mean, if you're hungry, the brain-gut axis, the, this brain-gut relationship is so important. And you know the amount of neurotransmitters that go through your gut and how it affects your mood. If you're hungry, you're really irritable, angry. It changes the mind. So there is definitely some sort of a connection between this physical, apparently so, according to this sort of relationship, um, between the physical and the mental. So it started off very illusionist for me. I started to think that perhaps we're not really prepared for the outcome. I know there's this one quote by Albus Dumbledore in Harry Potter in the books, and he says, um, Harry, just because it was a dream or something like that, doesn't mean it wasn't real. Or just because it's all in your mind doesn't mean it wasn't real. Yeah, that Chalmers, Chalmers reality plus now was the exactly. idea that even the 3D that we see through Oculus or through whatever is a real also in some sense. Very interesting. Chalmers' work on virtual reality at this point is becoming amazing. I mean, he's bringing up so many new topics that showcase how this is a real world. You put it on and you enter a new domain of reality. So yeah, we started off physicalist. I started very much physicalist. And this podcast, Mind Body Solution, is really what's slowly making me not mysterianism. I'm not a mysterianist at this point, but I am very ontologically unsure about what's out there. At this point, I've, I've heard theories that are so amazing, so well thought out, and I've heard such coherent logical arguments that I cannot make a, I cannot make an assumption of what consciousness is and what it's not. So yeah, that's for me, physicalism was my beginning though. And I, I fundamentally based my beliefs on it for a long time. Wonderful. In the range though, I just, for those who are listening, in the range of the big divisions, categories, let's say, physicalism, dualism, and then idealism and panpsychism, there are also mm. gradations of what scientists and philosophers think. And Tevin, Dr. Naidu mentioned, you know, already two aspects. One is illusionism and the other emergentism. And there are different layers of how much it's an illusion. There is strong illusionism or weak illusionism. So we want to really dissect it like, 
Okay, we're starting with physicalists, and now there are those who say that consciousness is just an illusion. Forget about it being an emergent real quality. They just say it's really an illusion. We are fooling ourselves that we have consciousness. So when we are just looking at our different quality cameras or printers, you know, we're looking at now physicalists who say it's an illusion. What are the pros and cons of this? Then we'll go to physicalists that say, well, consciousness actually is real, but it emerges from the physical. So what are the pros and cons of this? And what, from your side, how you have felt, what was impressive in those, you know, Frankish or Dennett that are more on the, on the illusion side or the emergentists like that. So we're just on these two categories to start with. Yeah. I mean, something that really pops up is immediately, I think Dennett has a quote, um, consciousness is an illusion of the brain, for the brain, by the brain. Mm. I mean, that's as physicalist as you can get. You are purely making the brain this object that is responsible for this phenomenal, subjective, qualitative experience, the qualia that we experience, the redness of red. I mean, that's the most popular philosophical color. People love the color red. <laughs> when yes. My own dissertation, I used a red sunset yeah. to describe. Which is a 700 nanometer wavelength, by the way, just like that. But we think it's red and fine. We live it as red. We experience it. I mean, a quote, this quote wasn't meant to refer to illusionism, but Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, he said something along the lines of truths are illusions, which we have forgotten are illusions. All right. And, and I think that's true. I think we, we're often, uh, we often think of things as they are when they're not in reality, they're not what we think they are. And just, I think the best place to start is definitions. I mean, the word illusion comes from a Latin word. It's called illudere, and it means to mock or to, to play against basically. And then it was translated thereafter in Middle English, I think it was translated to deception or deceiving. So I think the word illusion already comes with a lot of backlash for Frankish and Dennett because they have to do a lot of backtracking. What they're trying to say is, this is my interpretation, what they're trying to say is, is that it, consciousness is not an illusion per se in the sense that it does not exist. That the definition of an illusion, and you know this in psychiatry, we refer to it as, as an illusion, as a misinterpretation of sensory stimuli that do exist. So it's not misinterpreting non-existent stimuli. It's more you're just misinterpreting real stimuli. So when they refer to consciousness as an illusion, they're actually trying to refer to this ethereal entity we believe we have. So more people believe we have this sort of soul or consciousness entity that is ethereal, perhaps metaphysical, something we just cannot come to grasp with. And that's a misinterpretation. The truth is, we're, we're just this empty skull with, with a lot of uh, neurons and blood vessels and nerves. And that's what really makes us who we are. Paul Brocks, he's the writer, I mean, has this wonderful quote, I can't remember it word for it, I'll paraphrase it, but he says, when you're in surgery, a neurosurgeon, you cut open that brain, you look inside, you see this pulsating organ, blood gushing everywhere, you cut and probe, uh, you pick, you, you notice at that point that there's nothing else in there. There's just blood, vessels, nerves. There is no essence. There is no ethereal entity. And I found that very compelling at the time because that's what Dennett and Frankish are talking about. They're not specifically saying that this experience we're having, the, the seeing red, this qualitative phenomenon of red, does not exist. They're saying that this is not an ethereal essence-like quality. So it does in fact occur. It's, it's a real experience that we're having. Frankish calls it quasi-phenomenal features. So, so it's not that they're not happening, it's that they are, except when we introspect on this experience, we tend to give it an ethereal entity, and that's where their problem lies. They don't like the fact, it's almost like, I mean, Dennett calls it bringing up the Ian Vital once again. We're looking for this extra thing, layer of, of existence that makes humans more important. And we've done this. I mean, the theory of heliocentrism took us out of the center of the universe. The theory of evolution by natural selection took us off the top of the food chain. And uh, for, for them, illusionism takes us off this pedestal that, that we think as humans, we possess this fundamental quality that perhaps other animals don't. 
So it's interesting to see the dynamic play out because then you have, as you said, theories like panpsychism or idealism, where this could apply to any sort of organism. It doesn't have to be a human being. And, and that's where the topic kind of just goes into very different directions. Yeah, wonderful. So just to, to highlight a few points. You have molecules of water and they are H2O. And then they come together, as you mentioned, and they create fluidity or wetness. And we can say that fluidity and wetness are emergent qualities from basic elements. So if we say that fluidity actually doesn't exist as an essence, which means there is nothing a priori before mm. the water molecules coming together that is fluidity or that is wetness. There is nothing like that. But as they come together, they emerge. So there is a slight difference between illusionism fully, like at a higher level, where actually you think that there is fluidity, you think that there is wetness, but it's not really there. It's just your way of interpreting these things. And there is the full emergent level, which means now wetness actually emerges and fluidity actually are real. They're not an illusion. They are real on their own as something independent of, you know, how you judge them or not. They become actual real values. So can you say we have a little difference there between illusionism and emergentism, even though illusionism says that it's an emergent illusion that emerges from somewhere, but it doesn't want to recognize that something real actually emerges. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to sort of a lot of philosophers back in the day. If you think of people like Locke, Berkeley, etc. I mean, when you think of naive realism, for example, I mean, this is where a lot of illusionists will come at you because the fact is we don't see reality for what it is. We have to put on infrared goggles to see in the dark. We have to do these things, which means fundamentally we are not seeing reality for what it is. Let, let's take a few examples. If you think of something like inattentional blindness, I mean, you see a, you've seen that video, everyone's seen it where a gorilla runs yeah. across. I mean, you don't notice this until you're actually aware of it. Another thing is, is when you see a patient with perhaps split brain, he's got a corpus cholecectomy done. And now when you ask them questions, they sort of confabulate answers to justify reasons, but they fundamentally believe this is the truth. And this is where someone like Susan Blackmore, Professor Blackmore, she talks about what's called delusionism. This delusion that we think we're constantly consciously aware of things. Marvin Minsky once said like, well, well, we'll never make a computer that is aware of itself. But then again, humans are barely aware of themselves most of the time anyway. I'm paraphrasing that as well. <laughs> Yeah. Which, which is true. I mean, the only time we really ask ourselves or, or, or acknowledge the fact that we're conscious is when we ask ourselves, am I conscious now? Am I a conscious being? Other than that, you're an autopilot just driving home during the day. It's very robotic, very, very <laughs> mechanistic in a sense. But it's also clear that we work under frameworks. I mean, there was a time where we looked at pumps and thought that, okay, the brain functions as a pump. Consciousness must be this sort of pump-like system. Then we move on to like computers today. And now we've got Bayesian frameworks. People like Carl Friston, Anil Seth, much more intricate neuroscientific theories trying to explain consciousness. Very convincing as well. I know I've seen your talk with Anil. I'm going to probably chat to him soon. And I mean, Anil's doing some amazing work in neuroscience. But it doesn't change the fact that it's difficult to find neural correlates of consciousness. I mean, we can barely find neural correlates of love, of seeing red, because our brains are so fundamentally different. So to me, it's, it's just, it's difficult because the emergentist and the illusionist both agree fundamentally that the nature of reality is ontologically real. And, and all this physical, this physicality of the universe is real, which is an assumption because the truth is once this switches off, we don't know what happens next. We're not yet aware of what's going to happen, what happened prior to that, what happens after that. So you can't make that conclusion knowing that we barely see reality for what it is. I mean, physicalism itself, and 95% of the universe, we call dark matter. And that's just one way of saying we don't know. 
So you can't claim to know things and to all claim that reality is physical if you can barely explain what reality is. Well, this ironically, in fact, it brings the question that even in its own search for its own ultimate reality, the physical approach has taken us from different levels and layers of what we call real into the atom as the constituent, because if we're looking at an essence, then the atom is elementary particles, the elementary particles, whether quarks or whatever, are themselves fluctuations in fields. The fields are being unified more and more into more unified fields. And then you have quantum reality and quantum field theory and non-locality and superposition and entanglement and all of that. And so as if the physical approach itself is seeing with in front of its eyes the disintegration of the so-called hard localized classical ultimate reality that we know is completely disintegrated but even then going into the fields we have non-locality we have action at a distance whatever spooky or not <laughs> entanglement and all of that and so we're coming to fields of you know greatest scientists talking about mathematical nature of reality even mental nature of reality and all of that so when we say there is a hallucination or a collective hallucination we wonder what is the hallucination is it the hallucinator the subject the consciousness unit that is hallucinating that it is conscious or is it the object that is actually whatever we call the object that is being hallucinated and that leads us to also another thing which we have to i feel broaden our understanding and inclusion of what consciousness is that consciousness is not just the anthropomorphic i am conscious and meta consciousness you know when you mentioned the example of the gorilla moving while people are playing the uh, basketball or whatever and you ask people to count how many times they put it there and so they don't actually see the gorilla there but there are other studies where you can present different pictures i'm sure you're aware of this also of course and then you you create a certain diversion or quality of things and people don't see the picture at all because it's not in that particular view however when you analyze what's happening in their emotions and their brain they get a different reaction if the picture was a smiling face versus a frowning face and therefore there has been some kind of awareness which is subliminal and that leads us to think, well, maybe consciousness is not just being conscious on that surface level, but there is also a different layer of consciousness. We try to tend to call it subconscious or unconscious, but the physiology detected that, your cells detected that, your nervous system detected that and reacted to it. You don't know that has happened. Well, that's a higher level of consciousness. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's completely correct. If you think about Benjamin Libet's studies, I mean, back in the day when you were yeah. talking about free will, it aligns well. There's Yuri Maus who does more studies on that. We know that, let's say, for example, seeing or even, even introceptive things takes time to occur. I mean, there has to be some sort of a delay. So this temporality that we experience also must be some sort of an illusion to many people because in order to see something, photons have to travel to your eyes, then get transduced, processed, and then interpreted, and then you have to have that emotional response that you're talking about. Now, the question is, how can this happen in sort of a nanosecond? How is this possible? That temporality, it does change the game. It makes you wonder, are things happening unconsciously most of the time, which a lot of people do think? Um, unconscious inference, Helmholtz, he was one of the first people to talk about this, and that's where Carl Friston and Anil Sethan will come into this. They, that's why they think this is just a shared hallucination. I mean, the, the one thing they talk about that's fundamental is our, the fact that we have identical DNA structures. And because of that, it makes it easier for us to hallucinate a similar reality. Whereas if you and I were separated, let's say, by one gene and one of us were a chimp, um, we see completely different realities at that point because of the fact that there's a slight difference in DNA structures. But I completely agree. I think that this, this, the fact that we cannot interpret reality 
the same way due to all of our different and diverse unconscious inferences means that something must be going on that we just don't understand. I mean, a, a great example would be psychotic patients or patients with schizophrenia. Something very fascinating about these patients are when you show them a, an illusion, an optical illusion, um, let's say someone is psychotic at the moment, a schizophrenic patient having an acute psychosis, and you show them, let's say, the checkered board illusion, the famous one with the gray, one block's gray, the other yeah. one's white, and you ask them what color is the block, and they'll actually tell you it's, it's not gray, it's white. They don't see the illusion, which makes you wonder, are they seeing reality for what it really is <laughs> in their acute psychosis? And am I seeing a false reality? So you have exactly. to ask these philosophical questions, particularly when I was the doctor treating this patient. And that's why I sort of entered the philosophical sphere in any case, because, I mean, you can't not ask these questions. Is this experience that this patient is having where the solipsism has got to him, where every voice is sort of resonating with him, this could be a fundamental experience he's having that I just don't have access to. And it's not my place to sort of judge. I mean, I'm, we're there to help as doctors, obviously, as if you're a physician, you're there to help. But I'm not there to really tell him that this is not real because to him, this is a real experience. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of blurry lines there. <laughs> so reality is really different in different states of consciousness, what we can call states of consciousness. Because even what we call the unconscious, it's unconscious in certain level of appreciation of things. Mm. But if our cells and our body and our nervous system has reacted to that, but we don't know it on the meta-consciousness level, it still can be consciousness. And that's why I was in favor of broadening the concept of consciousness and taking it to whatever is being sensed or experienced or felt as also being a piece of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And when I build my idealistic theory, I am obliged in a sense and happily so to say that any sensing is a part of consciousness, any experience, which means even a stone sensing gravity mm. is a meager, minor, very little level of consciousness. And therefore consciousness is on the range from zero to who knows, even higher than human consciousness. And if we change the definition a little bit, then we can start to accept the panpsychist and ultimately the idealist perception. Now, let's, now, having discussed this aspect of physicalism, illusionism, emergentism, what are the pros and cons? And what are things that you intuitively feel? Well, I like to believe in this, but there are these you know, minor things that are not answered, that are lacking in the theory or the understanding. So how we put pros and cons to this? That's a, that's a great question. I think it's, it's an important question as well, because how we frame our understanding of consciousness and how we frame how we perceive what the mind is versus the body dictates how we treat people. It also affects ethics, morals, values, particularly, let's say, in psychiatry. If we are going to make the brain the fundamental element of where consciousness comes from, we're going to constantly look at neurocorrelates as evidence for experience. And therefore, we will treat patients a certain way because of something we've seen on a scan, perhaps a functional MRI, a CT scan, whatever it is. And you're treading on sort of dangerous territories there because you'll medicalize a lot of normal experiences that are human experiences. So if someone's having perhaps a manic episode and they scan this person's brain and they notice, okay, uh, just above, maybe perhaps just below the prefrontal cortex, we can see a lot of light activity there and perhaps we should do something about that area maybe we should touch that and affect that and, and that might be a problem because of the diversity of experiences we all have doing that to another patient might not help and um, so this medicalization of a normal human experience is one of the cons perhaps of this physicalist reductive approach to it but this is from a utilitarian kind of perspective which means are we better off taking that theory it helps us better socially and uh, functionally in society that's from that kind of utilitarian side but let's also think about it from a kind of it as an explanatory theory does it explain everything i mean 
you can say, oh, okay, it emerges, but how does it emerge? It's like, explain to me, is it some quantum mechanical thing in the tubules? But then there is so many arguments against this because, you know, on quantum mechanics, any interaction will collapse the wave function or will create the coherence and all that. So that falls apart. So we're just throwing an idea that consciousness emerges, somehow emerges, but how does it emerge? There is still a big explanatory gap, I think, in that, in that area also as part of the cons on the explanatory level. Yeah, I think, I think it was Michael Levin who called it for the first, uh, no, no, it was, I think it was Levin, not Michael though, who, who coined this term, the explanatory gap, similar to like the distinction between this hard problem of consciousness versus the easy problem or access consciousness versus yeah. phenomenal consciousness. And uh, you're right. I mean, there's no way for them to really explain this. I mean, you've got people like Penrose, John Viveki with, with quantum consciousness theories, and they're trying to talk about the microtubules and how this might affect it. But yeah, as you said, the more you go into the quantum mechanics of it all, the more you realize that this is so difficult to explain. We barely know what we're talking about. And we're, I mean, every, let's give it every 100 years, physics changes completely. I mean, Newtonian physics was completely obliterated once Einstein came along. And then you've got quantum mechanics that comes along while Einstein's there. And now he calls <laughs> the spooky action at a distance and he's freaked out about it. So physics doesn't really help us to explain the fundamental nature of reality because the assumption that's already made is that physics, physical objects are the fundamental nature of reality. So. That's but the thing is, is that's what all philosophers or scientists have to do in order to make a theory. You've got to make a, a presumption, an assumption. Something has to be assumed, and then you work from there. I think someone who's very convincing um, to change that around is someone like Donald Hoffman. I mean, if you think of conscious realism, which is in fact an idealist theory of consciousness, he really looks at the mathematics and the physics of it all. So he's kind of combining these two areas in a very creative way. This physicalist view and then now forming it together with this idealist view. And I remember, I'll never forget when he spoke about how he, he did the compute, computations, did the mathematics, and when he asked, well, well, when he tried to figure out what's the likelihood that we see reality for what it is, he got a probability of zero. And that says a lot. He, he apparently had to sit down and just take a breather because at that point he, he was physicalist, fundamentally a materialist, reductive, man who wanted to search for consciousness in this physical world and that can scare someone i mean your it can actually affect your mental health if you get a mathematical equation that you know is very rigorously done and effective and it tells you reality is just not what it is it will shift your thinking and when i've read books like that i mean when, when you listen to your theory anyone else's theory i spoke to philip goff the other day and you listen to some of the logical arguments they have against physicalism specifically many of them are very convincing. So I think in terms of explanatory gaps, both all these theories have an issue there. It's not just physicalism. I think idealists have this explanatory gap. We haven't gone to idealists. We will defend that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, no, no, for sure. But I, I think that they all do at some point, there is this explanatory gap. And it's not because one of the theories are wrong or the other is wrong. I think it's because I don't think that humans have the linguistic capabilities to explore these phenomena the way we could. And I think it comes down to language per se. I think that particularly the fact that we're using English, I think that certain languages portray a lot more information. Let's take, for example, ancient cultures like Sanskrit. I mean, the amount yeah. of punctuations, thousands, the way you could express the way you're talking about consciousness could possibly ex be expressed in like 10 different ways. Whereas we have this one word consciousness or soul, maybe like three to four words. I think the fact that we have this limitation linguistically, that we will struggle to explain such a complex phenomenon. And that's the way I think the problem really lies. <laughs> I am optimistic because I like my theory when we, when we get I to think, it. I think let's, let's talk about it. I mean, Tony, I'd love to hear about it. I mean, I've heard, I've heard enough, but yeah, I mean, talking to you directly, I would be, I'm keen to hear more about how do you think at the moment you're able to defend your view? I developed my theory since tens of years with working with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Mm -hmm. 
and starting with an assumption always you know the vedantic assumption that consciousness is all there is mm. and everything else is an appearance in consciousness here the explanatory gap changes it's no more the hard problem of consciousness it becomes the hard problem of physicalness because if everything is consciousness how do you explain the physical phenomena that we encounter so this is where i started in a sense with almost a prejudice or almost a, you know preconceived idea but it's the explanatory power that led me to be more or less and more and more as i delved into the possibilities of that being more convincing intellectually and answering more questions than the physicalist approach answers not only in terms of the appearance of the physical from the non-physical and we have to of course say how does it work what happens but also in terms of freedom and determinism and law and order and sin and good and bad and meaning of life and and the why of things why does it happen how does it happen most of these are metaphysical questions that in modern times mostly or until recently have been rejected by by scientists and thinkers because we decide okay we have no answer to them and so let's deal with what we can analyze and scientifically investigate and come to a logic rather than stay in the world of opinions so you know we needed something that can unify ontology epistemology ethics and even science and i feel that approach does the does the trick yeah. and so going back to the physicalist there is one major aspect of the physicalism which will always be i think a mystery where does energy come from yeah where does this physical come from even if we take it from the molecule to the atom to the elementary particle we say okay everything is fields fine everything is one field we can also say that scientists haven't fully discovered that there is the super string theory and m theory that that are coming very close to explaining that you know and strings vibrating and sound becoming important as if sound because it's vibration but then you ask where is the energy coming from when did it start when did it end the same questions that we ask when we are you know growing up and young is like what's the beginning what's the end what's beyond the universe emptiness or what or what's there it's at a at a certain point it has to end but what is infinity so i think these are fundamental questions that the physicalists cannot answer and will probably never answer and the reason i think they cannot is because their starting point is the wrong one. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, but like, so how would, how would an idealist answer that question? So let's move then. We've moved from the physicalist, illusionism, emergentism, and now we have, let's say, dualism. Dualism, we're not going to try to defend it very much because it's hard to believe how two different things talk to each other and mm. why should there be two things or why should there be a third element that creates these two things? So this has been kind of neglected by philosophers and thinkers. So now the question is, okay, if it's not the physical that is primary, it is then consciousness or something like conscious, something non-physical that is primary. Now in this camp, we have two aspects broadly. We have the panpsychists and we have the full idealist. So it's your time, your, it's a joy to be with you. Tell us about the difference between panpsychists and pure idealists. Yeah, so, I mean, they are very, very different versions of all of them. I've heard so many different versions of panpsychism at this point, and so many different versions of idealism that uh, it can get quite tricky to keep up with a lot of them. But in a nutshell, I mean, for, for the average listener or viewer, Panpsychism is is considering all possible entities that exist to be mind. So let's say, for example, this microphone has elementary particles. Each element within them have sort of a layer of consciousness. If you sort of think of integrated information theory, they're almost taking a, a panpsychist 
approach to trying to figure out consciousness, except they are fundamentally physicalist moving upward. But they are giving a level of fight to everything moving down. So it's almost a panpsychist approach in that sense. And I think that's the most basic way to try and explain panpsychism. Speaking to Philip, I asked him, I mean, I asked him, how, at what point does a panpsychist separate from an idealist? And I think where an idealist changes the view is, is that everything fundamentally comes from within. It's not necessarily a solipsistic I, I, a thought. It's not, a lot of people misinterpret that as solipsism. I mean, uh, everything comes from my mind specifically. It, it's more that all, it's mind over matter, basically. It's mind, there, there's no need to invoke a physical reality in this case, because everything is mental. Just quickly to the listeners that there are panpsychists who are dualists, which means they think there is something, we don't know what it is, but it has consciousness, the term having consciousness. And that is where also the, the, the difference is, does it have consciousness or is it consciousness? So if it has consciousness, it means it's kind of a dualist. And many panpsychists were dualists saying, okay, everything has consciousness, including the most elementary particles. Mm. I find it fascinating that I still think dualism is the most common view people have. The, the non-philosopher slash non-scientist. It's, it's fascinating because you, you don't want to let go of the fact that there must be something extra to you. There is a body and there is a mind, so there must be mind and matter. So a lot, most people growing up start off as, as dualists. And I think when Descartes thought that at the time, I mean, very profound. But today, if you ask the average person on the street, I mean, what do you think? Most people are dualists. So you're right. Uh, you're absolutely correct. A lot of panpsychists are dualists. They're almost hidden dualists. They're just, right. <laughs> it's, it's almost a, a disguise. But, but there are some very coherent, I mean, I mean, Philip says that if panpsychism was not his choice, I remember him once saying, he'd then go for illusionism because of the fact that the, the, the way the arguments are set out and laid out, he thinks that it makes the most sense coherently. So it's fascinating how a panpsychist, I mean, him and Frankish have their own podcast together. Yes. <laughs> it's both extremes. <laughs> yeah. These two guys have completely different views. One's calling consciousness, phenomenal consciousness, specifically an illusion. And the other one is saying, no, everything we experience is fundamentally mind, uh, but in a different way from an idealist. But yeah, it, I think these two, panpsychism and idealism, are growing, though. These are definitely yeah. views that are, are are reaching higher numbers. More people are starting to join this this group of thinkers, and it's great because the more we challenge each view, and the more people we have doing it, the more what we're doing as podcasters trying to figure out this mind body problem, it'll help. I think it can it can only do good for us. Wonderful. I had a great time with Philip Goff, and I asked him in it how these these aspects of individual consciousness emerge is it like a fairy dust suddenly with infinite number of individual conscious units and then we have the combination problem how these individual units come together to create a palette of consciousness which is much more sophisticated and a higher consciousness which suddenly can see itself experience itself know that it is conscious as we have in the humans he responded that he thinks it's fields, mm. mostly kind of fields. And this is where we have the difference between panpsychist and idealist. True idealist would say it's not fields, it's one field. So mm. it's one consciousness. And mm. that one consciousness, then you have to have all the problems of decombination. <laughs> and I had also a discussion with Castro. And I asked him, okay, this is the one, I, one field, and how does it become many? And mm. he said, practically, he said, it's a brute fact because we see it as many. Uh, but there is an explanatory gap there, which is still not answered, that comes into the cons of such kind of explanation. Mm. And so, what our task will be is whether we take this or that, we have to explain the other because mm. we know we have consciousness and we see the physical as real. So if we start with consciousness, 
then we have to explain how the physical emerges. And if we can, why does it emerge? And if we can, is there a meaning to it? That takes us to a little bit of teleology and telos and meaning, which is a different layer of investigation. But we ultimately have to get to that because all we're doing is trying to make sense of where we are, <laughs> where we're going. That's why you do your podcast is like, hey, guys, why are we here? What are we doing? You know, is it my consciousness, is it my body? What do, how do they talk to each other? What's the meaning of it all? And so that's why I wrote my book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, in order to kind of find this kind of building reality from one ultimate reality, which is the most simple, the most parsimonious possible, which is consciousness in a sense and consciousness as a non-physical reality yes i mean to me there's so many different versions of this that i think it's galen strawson i, I know i was speaking to noam chomsky again because we did it around two and and we, he, he was talking about how this young philosopher galen strawson and then i started realizing i'm i'm very young because if noam <laughs> is talking about galen as a young philosopher <laughs> I'm way too young to be having this conversation. But you're amazing. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tony. I appreciate that. Yeah, so Galen's a mysterious at this point. I mean, I'm slowly moving towards that, I must say. The more, I mean, you, you have such logical arguments. Bernardo has such, with his analytical idealism, such intriguing, fascinating thoughts. You've got someone like Donald. You've got people like Anil, Christoph, all of these people working on so many different theories. To me, I, I doubt the fact that humans are capable of doing this at this point. I'm starting to wonder that, I mean, all my physicalist intuitions have completely been obliterated at this point. The more I read about quantum mechanics, I mean, if you take it down to a, a max pl a Planck length, of, we don't know what's below that. We don't know what's beyond what we can't see at this point. If we think the universe is 13.8 billion light years, we don't know what's beyond that. We're hoping something like James Webb will explain things like this. It's not going to happen. Multiverses, you know, Tegmarts, uh, different universes. And... To me, I think we'll definitely find something new. Uh, the only problem is every time we put a plank on this bridge, there's just more ocean continuing, ocean of unbound consciousness. We're just going to continue to put planks, slowly trying to walk over that bridge, trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm worried that even though my podcast is primarily it's called mind body solution because the goal is to find a solution to the mind body problem that's that's my goal however i do not think personally we are going to find it what i do want though and what i've made very explicit in my podcast is i i want to take one step closer to the mind body solution because that's as far as i think we're going to get i think that we're not going to find this <laughs> something that i do think about often though you're speaking about teleology and Telos and for me, I'm more curious to see what happens when artificial intelligence does sort of reach a point where we're no longer able to differentiate between our consciousness and theirs. Are we similar? Are we not? Do we switch this off? Do we not? The question then arises is, were we meant to have consciousness or were we meant to be here to invoke consciousness? into another species, which is now mechanistic in silicone. And is that the way forward? To me, that's a very fascinating thought, very science fiction vibes. But I do think that's a possibility at this point. Uh, the, at the rate we are exploring technology, it's exponential. I mean, I do think in, in the next 100 years, we're going to have a sort of a singularity with technology. And it's going to cause a lot of chaos, I think, amid all the beauty we'll find out. Because that's what we're searching for, obviously this this beautiful experience and how do we explain it but yeah I'm, I'm very fascinated by that thought that's wonderful i think you asked this question to frisch in one of your uh, podcasts whether the next level of evolution is actually the artificial intelligence very very sharp to ask because th they might be higher and when we think of potential extraterrestrials who have to cross thousands and millions of light years if they are to come to us, they might probably be artificial intelligence machines, but they are conscious probably and more conscious. And they have bodies that are not deteriorating or 
then can rebuild themselves and have almost immortal situations and have greater intelligence. So these are all today part of science fiction, but it's potentially plausible. A lot of science fiction stories have become science of today. So it's yeah. very plausible. I'm not sure if you've watched the movie Her. I didn't, no. I think it's Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson is this artificial intelligence partner that he starts forming a relationship with. But it's just a computer program. And slowly this artificial intelligence continues to grow, learn more about the universe, learn more about humans, learn more about other artificial intelligence. Eventually all of them just con connect to each other and leave humanity completely. And none of the humans know where all of it's gone. And it's wow. just a phenomenon that's so, because we won't be able to understand. <laughs> if they you wonder if it's yeah. than us. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. very <laughs> interesting. Well, I want to add a potential optimism in the sense of the ultimate discovery. I'd like to put my vision, my, let's call it paradigm, to the test with you, because you're so deep and acute in things. And I've put it to the test with a number of these great thinkers. And I think I was so far satisfied that it holds its own and maybe can be the actual solution. Now you can never prove that consciousness, for example, is all there is or consciousness is primary, but you can see its explanatory power, its logic, if it makes sense, if it is cogent and coherent within itself. And then you can get what Kuhn likes to, to call closer to truth. I, I had a discussion with him and he said, we can never get to the ultimate truth. That's why I call it closer to truth. <laughs> one step closer to the mind yeah, body one step, As you exactly said and beautifully said. Time is passing. So we're moving to the idealist level of understanding. Mm. The panpsychics also has to explain what are these conscious units? Where do they come from? How do they emerge? Why they are different? And there is multiplicity and they have to face the combination problem also. And so there are these cons, but one thing that is to be considered is that if we have consciousness, and as Descartes almost says in a nice way that actually it's the one thing we can be 100% sure about because if you get the Descartes demon that giving you all these illusions, one thing that they cannot give you as an illusion is that you think and that's where we have, uh, I think, therefore I am. And so if we have that, why do we have to deny it to other entities? Because if that's the one thing we are sure about, why suddenly we decide that we are the only one who have it? We might say we have it to a large extent, maybe not to the largest possible extent, but others might have it to a lesser extent. And how do we, why should we so pretentious as to deny it to other things? And that's where maybe panpsychism comes into the picture. However, it has its cons, it has its limitations. I feel like if we start with the simplest possible starting point, which is something that is non-physical, which means it's already beyond time and space, which means almost you cannot say, where does it start? Where does it end? Because it's not bound within space and time because space and time don't even exist. And it doesn't require some energy that comes from somewhere, it's just, consciousness which is outside the framework of our understanding of the physical the temporal the arrow of time and all of that then we starting with the most simple idealist that is the extreme idealist level now the question is how does this become multiplicity from oneness and how does the universe actually emerge and why it becomes very difficult to answer at that point and I think a lot of the difficult aspects of that is, is that we've grown up so fundamentally physicalist in general. It's so hard to step out of this physical world and try and explain a universe that has no quarks, no bosons, there's no fermions, there's nothing around to talk about. I mean, if you are a panpsychist and you're talking about sort of uh, waves and uh, vibrations, um, or if you're an idealist talking about one single 
vibration. It, it, it becomes very difficult to make theories that we can test that's applicable. And I think that's where a lot of physicalists come with this problem. Because as you're talking about this explanatory gap, if a theory can predict things in science, that becomes the most plausible scientific theory we go with. But the problem then comes in is scientism is also in itself a philosophy. It's a philosophical outlook. You can't justify most of your opinions on that. But for me, the idealist view is very convincing in the sense that when you look at reality, it is all you experience. I mean, you don't have access to another person's consciousness. The only red I know is the red I've seen. And, and I'll never know anyone else's red. I'll, I'll never be able to experience it. I'll never be able to talk about it as a neural correlate because no two people ever experience the same kind of red. So to me, that's a very plausible way to talk about this. If you want to go with an all-mind approach. The only problem then comes in is when two people who used to see something similarly as red, suddenly one of them changed because of a brain injury. Then you're now stuck with this dilemma. Okay, how did this happen? Why did it affect it? And now you have to ask the question, is there a physical aspect to this? Dualism to me is the least convincing. I mean, they, I don't see this uh, separation. I see them as fundamentally bound somehow, uh, whether it's ideally bound as an idealist or panpsychist sort of all built up, or whether it is just all material, I don't know. But uh, for me, I think dualism is just not, not, not on, the, on the playing cards. I'm no longer looking at that as a, as a, as a reference source anymore. But yeah, I, for me, it's, it's, it's tough. They're all fascinating views, and I, I'm, I'm on the fence with all of them at this point. <laughs> I'm hoping one of them are right. But just like you, I'm very optimistic, and I'm hoping we're one day going to find this. And hopefully we're alive to see it, Tony. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you could be right, and this could all be just this unbound ocean of consciousness we're experiencing. And years will come, and at, at some point we're all going to realize, I mean, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> The time will tell. Yes, I haven't, of course, explained it yet. We're just starting point. I've watched and read some of it, so I, I get the, some of it, but there's a lot that I'm sure if we had a deeper discussion, you'd be able to convince me even more. I mean, very beautiful work. I think we have some, some planned uh, discussion in a couple of days. Yes. Then maybe we can take that if you like. When I have you on my show, I mean, that's obviously going to be my goal, is to dissect your theory of consciousness because that, that's fundamentally what my podcast is about. It's trying to get you to have a platform where you're allowed to talk about your theory without me debating. So it's it's never a debate for me. It's, I've always told the guests, this is you, an opportunity for you to display and portray this theory as openly as possible. And I try and do my best to ask questions that are direct and as well-researched as possible so that they don't have to have the trouble of explaining basic concepts to the viewer or the listener, the assumption is always that the listener or viewer is coming to this podcast with some knowledge of philosophy or neuroscience, psychology, whatever. So yeah, so when you're on my show, it's definitely just going to be about me trying to understand <laughs> your view a lot more. You do a great job. It's really a delight to, to watch your podcast. And uh, that's why it, you've attracted great thinkers and scientists. Tony, I think your, your open mind, even though you do have your view of consciousness and what you believe in, uh, and it hasn't changed. I still think that the fact that you're able to communicate with these people openly have amazing discourse. I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing, and I think that's what we need more of and why it's, it's important for us to have these podcasts because the more people have access to it, the more this discussion will continue to grow and flourish. Wonderful. And if physicalism is reality or consciousness is reality, they have a different outcomes on a utilitarian level, you know, and yeah. that is, are we here to accumulate from the physical level or there is something more on the consciousness level to develop? Are we going to use more the physical means of resolving issues or we have to resort to conscious means or consciousness mm -hmm. means? And when the first world war came, then the League of Nations came out to say that this is the war that will end all wars. And it didn't. And then when it again happened World War II, then it came the, United, the UNESCO and United Nations. And then the charter, they said that wars are happening in the mind of men, which means humans, of course, gender 
indiscriminate. And uh, that is the recognition that actually something happens in the mind, but some mm. will tell you the mind is a product of neurotransmitters, etc., on the physical of your food, of your thinking. But we know from technologies of the mind, you know, in particular transcendental meditation, for example, which I practice and I teach, and other techniques of yoga and like that, that through the mind and integration between mind and body, we can change also the physiology through the mind, through, through diving into consciousness. So if people's awareness opens, is people's work on consciousness and accept consciousness and are able to relate with each other as conscious beings, we might have different approach to solving problems than uh, resorting to war and strife and killing and I, I think I, I agree with that. I think that a lot of the physicalist theories come from a very much westernized version of thinking. Uh, whereas when you look at the East, most of the theories are very much come from a, an almost idealist panpsychic sort of view. And it does affect the practices because you can notice the big difference between the West colonizing the rest versus the East. Even though they, they had their own wars and were fighting, they were practicing a lot of meditation, a lot of transcendental meditation, a lot of thinking, cognitively engaging with themselves, not with others. And, and I think it does show that there's a difference in the way they approach life. You can tell that there's a fundamental difference in the way they approach war, the way they approach um, many things. So I do think it does have practical implications because if we're all preparing for war, perhaps a physicalist westernized version will start prepping the guns, prepping all of the firepower, whereas the meditators and the thinkers who are panpsychist idealists might sit down, try and cognitively engage with this issue, try and figure out a solution in a different way. So I, I completely agree in that sense that there are very much practical outcomes here and it will affect ethics, it will affect morals, values. So it's important that we figure out this problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What you're doing is great. <laughs> Responsibility, <laughs> reasons why we do things, why there is sin, why there is fighting, why there is uh, suffering, why there is happiness. We have to put it all together. It's wonderful to be with you. One hour has passed. I don't know if you would like to say something. You expected me to cover some point. We're happy to go in any direction. Well, thanks, first of all. I mean, it's been really amazing chatting to you. It's uh, great to speak to someone who has similar interests. And even in the medical field, I mean, you've gone through, you've done a lot of things that I'm going through currently and similar paths, medicine and then philosophy. It's great to, to have people out there doing the same thing. For me, it's all about asking questions, having a curious mindset, just constantly this passionate curiosity, try and figure out the deeper layer, the deeper meaning of reality. And I've been doing this since I was a child. I, I tried my best not to allow dogma to affect me, even though I'm not immune, whether it's religion, whether it's spirituality, certain thoughts from science, school, you can get indoctrinated by anything. And for me, it's all about trying to keep that open mindset. And even while interviewing a guest who I fundamentally disagree with, let's say perhaps we're talking free will. And if someone is a libertarianist and I'm, for example, a compatibilist, I'm not, but I'm just to give you an example. Yeah. Even with free will, I'm, I'm very agnostic at this point. <laughs> I often say I'm ontologically agnostic about the nature of reality. But epistemologically, I don't believe most of the stories. <laughs> so, Beautiful. yeah, so it's, 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 a, it's a curiosity slash skepticism. I try and keep that skepticism so I can try to ask better questions. And I think that's the goal with Mind-Body Solution is for me to try and ask better questions by being skeptical while still respecting the guest and allowing them to, to portray their view as openly as possible without feeling as if this is a debate. And yeah, I'm enjoying it so much. It's changed my views. It's changed the way I think about consciousness, free will, morality, spirituality. It's, it's been an amazing journey. And I think you will also experience it. I mean, you have probably experienced so much growth from this. It's wonderful having these chats. And I thank you so much for having one with me as well. And you're doing absolutely great. Of course, if we come with yellow glasses, how can we see the other colors? So we have to know how to clean up our glasses, remove them, 
sit back and be open to all possibilities. Mm -hmm. And dogma is often an obstacle to progress, although people have their rules, their ways of living, their habits, their traditions, their even belief systems that comes from for them a power that is all knowing. Mm. And that's fine. Even that, maybe they are right. <laughs> and for those who want to ask questions, they just sit and discuss and see from this perspective, from that perspective. And that's how we can get closer to the ultimate reality and its implications on our life. Thank you so much, Tony. It was an absolute pleasure. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Tony. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.